and welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, and welcome to Grid Talk. Today we have with us Peter Asmus, who's newly installed as Executive Director of Alaska Microgrid Group, with some exciting trends and developments to share with the rest of the country. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm pretty good. Well, thank you for joining us. I want to start off, off right off the bat and have you describe what the market looks like in Alaska and how it has come to have more microgrids than any state in the country. Well, I think um, Alaska, what's unique about Alaska is it's number one in the U.S. for total microgrid capacity. At last count, I saw something like 3,500 megawatts of installed capacity. Most of those systems are what I would call remote power systems where there is no grid. And that's what's unusual about Alaska. It actually looks more like the rest of the world's microgrid market, which tends to be those kind of remote power systems in Africa and in India, parts of Australia. But there is also in Alaska some grid-connected microgrids. So it has a little bit of both. And what's interesting about the market is the renewables being integrated into those microgrids are not being driven by policy or mandate. They're being driven by economics because it's the high cost of diesel that actually has been an incentive for utilities. And most of these microgrids are run by utilities. That's another distinction with the lower 48 that just want to save on operational costs. So can you give us a rough breakdown of what percentage of the utility scale microgrids or investor-owned utilities versus public entities? Oh, by far, they're almost all public entities. That's the other thing that's unique. So Alaska has over 100 electric utilities serving less than 800,000 people. So it's a very decentralized, deregulated market and virtually no private utilities. Basically, all the utilities are some form of electric cooperatives with just a a handful of private utilities. So I would estimate over 75% of that capacity is from um, publicly owned utilities. So I I would say just right off the bat here, to what extent do you view Alaska as a test bed for what greater penetration of microgrids in the United States, lower 48, would look like? Yeah, well, I think because it's such a, I mean, virtually everyone in Alaska gets their electricity from a microgrid. Um, there is some transmission. It's called the rail belt grid, and that's where you have grid interconnected microgrids, although they, ironically enough, have less renewable energy than the rest of the more remote power systems in general. Um, but the lessons learned, I think, are a lot of it is on integration. How do you best integrate renewables with different forms of storage? In Alaska, we also have quite a few hydro based microgrids, which is also a little unusual. It's kind of the forgotten renewable resource. So there are a lot of projects that are integrating batteries into diesel wind systems 
or diesel hydro systems. And then the latest trend, which is now following the lower 48, is solar. So usually people used to think parts of the year, Alaska, the sun never sets, other parts of the year, it never rises. And so solar was sort of, people said, well, no, that's, you know, that's too weird of a resource. But now, um, more and more solar is being integrated to, into the microgrids as well. So I think the lesson is, you know, more diverse renewables as opposed to just solar and storage. And then on top of that, different forms of batteries, including flywheels, lithium ion, and even pumped hydro storage has been integrated into microgrids in Alaska. So, so Peter, to start the story at the beginning, uh, what is it that uh, Alaska Microgrid does for utilities in Alaska? And why don't you start by saying why you joined the group? What are the, some of the challenges that you see? And what are some of the exciting opportunities? Yeah, well, AMG actually was started in about 2020, but that's when COVID hit. And so it it's taken a while to kind of get it together. And so I was uh, just joined a few months ago. Um, as the executive director, mainly because I'd done some work with the Alaska Center for Energy and Power, which is kind of the main university and almost um, it's kind of the, the prime entity where people look for energy and innovation. So AMG is essentially a subset of that Alaska Center for Energy and Power. And I went there because, one, I have been emerged as a global microgrid expert. My previous job was with Navigant Research, which became Guidehouse Insights. And there, I created the first global data set on microgrids. I created a model to help forecast the future. I help rank vendors. So I have deep experience on global microgrids. And so this opportunity arose to basically work in the state that is leading the U.S. on microgrids. And so part of what we do is help local communities on microgrids. So, for example, we're working with a a small community in the interior of Alaska. They got some government grants to install some key components, but they don't know what business model to use. How should they structure that arrangement? Who should own what? And so we are advising them on different scenarios, the pros and cons. But the other aspect of Alaska Microgrid Group is to uh, harness the lessons learned from Alaska for other markets like in Puerto Rico, for example, or Australia. That We recently, I attended a global uh, energy event in a small community called Cordova where we had people from around the world coming to Alaska to tour one of the local microgrids and to kind of learn what has Alaska learned that is relevant and um, as I said before, what's unique about Alaska is these microgrids are run by utilities. In the lower 48, most microgrids are not run by utilities. They're run by the private sector. So in a way, Alaskans can speak a language that other utilities would understand and probably have more credibility with some of those utilities as well. Educate us on why microgrids are so pervasive in Alaska. Is it simple as the fact that building transmission would be, for a widely dispersed population would be difficult? Yes. I mean, Alaska is a huge state. If you put Alaska on top of uh, the continental U.S., it actually spans almost the entire country, although a lot of that is the Aleutian Islands, which is just a narrow strip of islands that almost reach over to Russia. So it is basically simple where it doesn't make sense to interconnect all of these relatively small 
communities, except this one spot called the Rail Belt Grid, which connects Fairbanks, uh, one of the bigger cities, to Anchorage, and then it goes uh, further south to a city called Homer, Alaska. So that's where there's the Rail Belt Grid. And ironically, that's where some of the, they could learn some stuff from the lower 48 and how to better maybe manage that grid. But it's really, like I said, Alaska is more like the global market where most microgrids, if you said the word microgrid 30 years ago, everyone assumed you were talking about these remote power systems. It was only uh, when DOE defined microgrids under the Obama administration that the focus turned more to these grid-connected microgrids. And then what happened is the extreme weather events with hurricanes, wildfires, you know, freezes in Texas that led to people being more interested in what some people call resiliency microgrids, microgrids connected to a grid, but which can disconnect when the power goes out and you still have the power flowing. So what is the DOE definition of a microgrid that fits in Alaska? Well, that's the irony. The the definition, which I unfortunately don't have right in front of me, but is basically um, the idea is a distributed set of energy resources and loads that is integrated into a system that operates as a standalone entity that can disconnect from the grid. Now, most of those Alaska microgrids, there is no grid. So I call those remote microgrids. And I've been told that DOE has added a footnote to acknowledge that there are these other microgrids. So that's kind of the irony that the biggest state for U.S. microgrid capacity, a number of those systems, theoretically don't meet the original DOE definition. But like I said, I was told that there's like a footnote that the definition recognizing the Alaska experience. So what is it exactly that Alaska microgrid does for utilities in Alaska? And do you think that's a template that there should be other statewide organizations like AMG fulfilling a similar role? Well, what we do is we offer advice. We um, connect them with um, sometimes possible sources of funding. Usually what we're doing is we're also doing some scenario planning. Like in this one community, it's more on the business model side. We're also involved in, uh, I mentioned the rail belt grid, a study to how best to decarbonize that grid, looking at different options, different technologies. So we serve, we have a lot of board members who've been involved with microgrids 25, 30 years. So we draw upon their experience. Like, for example, this utility in Cordova, where this conference was, they have figured out things that are unique to Alaska. For example, what kind of batteries can survive the cold winters? How best to use those batteries? Basically, things like that. So we draw upon utility leaders of these small cooperatives and basically share knowledge, share lessons learned. And then we also can bring them in touch with global players and make some recommendations along those lines, like how best to finance something, how best to integrate batteries and stuff like that. So you've been around for some time, Peter, and you know the situation in in the States, lower 48. Do you think the model in Alaska of having an organization like AMG makes sense for Ohio, Texas, Maine, California? Yes, well, I think um, the the microgrid market, so I started on microgrids about 12 years ago, and the difference between then and now is, is pretty dramatic in terms of the market 
maturing, you know, energy storage coming down, solar coming down. So there's still a lot of positive things, but there's still a lot of challenges like how to best integrate into grids. What is the best business model? What is the role for utility? Whether it's a private versus public, is it in a is it vertically integrated? Does it operate in a deregulated market? So my view is what I'm bringing to AMG is more of a global perspective and lessons learned from the lower 48. So it's kind of a bi-directional exchange. So AMG is doing the same thing. I do think organizations like AMG will play a role as microgrids become more common and as utilities specifically become more involved. It used to be very few utilities in the lower 48 were involved in microgrids and they've run into regulatory issues with rate basing uh, concerns. But now that's starting to shift. You have Duke Energy and you have some other utilities, Green Mountain Power and uh, SMUD, uh, Sacramento Municipal Utility District now really getting more involved with microgrids and seeing the value and the value they bring to the larger grid. Because originally utilities viewed microgrids as a threat to their revenue and some other things, but now they can serve as demand response resources. With FERC order 2222, they can also provide value up to wholesale markets. So the whole world is really going through a transformation and groups like AMG there could be regional uh, groups like that or state by state. Either way, I think organizations like AMG will play a, a more critical role in the near future. So um, let's let's dive in into Alaska now. And uh, you've mentioned a couple of innovative microwave projects, Cordova, Kodiak Island, Kotzebue, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Talk about the, those three and what's unique about those projects. Well, I think the Cordova one, I just came back from Cordova where they've actually had a microgrid operating for over 100 years. So that's, first of all, pretty long track record. It started out as 100% hydro, then went to 100% diesel, and now is trying to go back to 100% renewable energy. But there, it's a lot of the challenges was just how to tweak a run-of-the-river hydro. First of all, not a a big hydro dam, but run-of-the-river. They have huge peaks in spikes. It's a a big fishing village. So in the summer, the peak demand is huge. In the winter, it's very low. So a lot of it was sort of innovation on how to uh, deal with hydro diesel. And basically, they added a lithium-ion battery to better manage all that. So, you know, I think that's the Cordova story. They also did underground lines. So they have super uh, reliability because they this is a microgrid. So within the microgrid, all the power lines are now underground. Um, Kodiak Island is a much bigger microgrid. Um, that one's 28 megawatts. Cordova is basically more like about a six to eight peak megawatt um, load. So at Kodiak Island, it is an island. In fact, it's the second largest island in the entire U.S. Also a bit of a a fishing um, area, isolated grid. And there um, they've actually integrated both a flywheel and a battery storage system. And they get 99.9% of their energy from renewables, primarily wind, hydro, and batteries. And then Kotzebue is an older microgrid that was mainly relied on solar, uh, I mean on wind. And so now um, it's about 30 miles above the Arctic Circle, obviously a, a pretty cold 
climate. But now they've added solar. They added about, um, it's a little over half a megawatt of solar to integrate with the, uh, with the existing wind turbines. They took out some of the real old wind turbines. And uh, the solar installation is actually the second largest in Alaska and the largest in rural Alaska. So, you know, those are just three examples of relatively large remote microgrids in Alaska. There's many, many that are smaller. And then um, some of the bigger, other big ones are more like military bases that are exist in this uh, rail belt grid. What are some of the advantages and disadvantages of uh, publicly owned utilities pushing these microgrids? Well, I mentioned, I hinted at this earlier, some of the investor-owned utilities, I know Baltimore Gas and Electric is one, um, tried to put new microgrid investments into the rate base and the regulators initially rejected that the challenge for let's say a private owned utility that might be relatively large is do the benefits of that microgrid flow just to a select few ratepayers or to all the ratepayers and i guess in that one example there they the utility wasn't unable to prove that the benefits you know accrued to the entire rate base uh, now, that being said, microgrids now are becoming more um, common, and so the, the utilities that have been most successful, like Duke Energy, one example, um, is that uh, they've used it as a non-wires alternative. So in that case, you say the microgrid is a lower-cost solution than, let's say, building a new transmission line to a certain community or whatever. That's also why the sort of poster child of utility microgrids in the U.S., which is Borrego Springs uh, for San Diego Gas and Electric, it was justified that it would be more expensive to reinforce a transmission line to a relatively remote community that was still grid-connected than just build a microgrid. And then they added a solar farm to that microgrid where now it's like 28 megawatts and it's now going to be going to a goal of 100% renewable energy. So, you know, those are um, some of the issues. So a public-owned utility, though, doesn't have to go to a public utilities commission. They tend to be smaller in size, and so they don't necessarily have the same kind of regulatory scrutiny. Um, they're smaller, and uh, basically, you know, the owners of the system probably can make it a little easier to fit in a microgrid. Could even be the entire muni for small munis might become a microgrid. So in that sense, they, they face less opposition um, but of course munis could be either fairly progressive or might um, not want to venture out into something that they feel is untested like a microgrid so you know there's pros and cons with uh, the utility argument you mentioned earlier on um, alaska's historic dependence on diesel um, and its lack of fossil fuels for generation how has the the spread of microgrids in alaska enable greater penetration um, of renewables and, and brought on more renewables? And, and how is the mix of resources working out on these microgrids? Well, the mix is now, um, I think a lot of the early micro, well, the earliest microgrids in Alaska, like Cordova, were high, more hydro-based systems, which was kind of one of the, probably the earliest renewable and throughout much of the U.S., including here in California, I'm based and then they went to wind when I first started on microgrids about 12 years ago um, Australia and Alaska were kind of held up as 
as leading markets, in both markets, it was primarily wind-diesel sort of hybrids. Now, um, we're moving into more solar in Alaska. We also have a geothermal microgrid in Alaska. It might be the only or one of the few in the country. And now we're even looking at um, tidal power. Alaska has an incredible tidal resource, which makes sense. If you think about it, you're at the very top of the world, so you're going to have wide tidal springs you have a lot of coast and there's even talk about modular nuclear reactors there's a lot of interest in small reactors around five megawatts or so um, perhaps being integrated into some of the microgrids as well so you know those the diversity is the key is um, the more diverse resources you have in a microgrid the more resilient it can be provided you have a microgrid control that can manage that variability and that's the other good news i didn't mention is that's the other reason the microgrid market is matured is those controls keep getting better with things like artificial intelligence and just a more decentralized approach to controlling a microgrid rather than copying the big grid with a more top-down approach it's been discovered it's a bottoms-up approach is better for these smaller microgrids than sort of a top-down approach so what percentage of the customers or the load in uh, Alaska would you say is served by microgrids right now? Is it most? Is it half? Or is it, what's your best read? Close to 100%. Close to 100%. Even though, even where there's a rail belt grid, the transmission system, it's all comprised of microgrids. The challenge there is that these microgrids all are self-balancing. And this um, study I mentioned that AMG is involved with decarbonization, one of the options we're looking at is shouldn't maybe they should have some sort of independent system operator. There is a law that's looking at some more regional sort of transmission planning and, and enabling these microgrids to perhaps share resources more easily, make it more economic, do more sort of demand-side balancing to reduce the fossil fuel, the rail belt grid actually has a much higher reliance on natural gas uh, as opposed to these remote systems, which are almost diesel. So that's where a lot of the future innovation will lie. But essentially, 100% of Alaskans, you could say, get power from some form of a microgrid. And do you think a wider embrace of that philosophy and approach in the lower 48 would obviate the need for massive transmission investments? Well, I think, um, I mean, I'm in California where, thank God, this year we haven't had quite the wildfires yet. Of course, it's, you know, this could still happen. I think more microgrids, um, part of grid modernization efforts, I think there is a recognition that having more resiliency and the ability to sectionalize the grid and, and enable an islanding is becoming more appealing. And I think utilities... Now see uh, these microgrids. I know there's two examples in California where microgrids kept the whole grid from collapsing in the San Diego area just by islanding and taking off uh, a little bit of load from the grid that enabled the grid to survive. One incident happened just a few years ago and the other one more, um, more distantly, but more like within the last seven years or so. So I think there's 
utilities now are not as opposed to microgrids as when I started on the research. And like I said, they're now just trying to figure out what business model makes sense. What is their role in a microgrid since they usually still have to rely a little bit on outside vendors for some of the technology? But of course, they've done that historically anyways. So I see microgrids... um, uh, becoming a bigger and bigger thing as climate change impacts accelerate and the power outage rate keeps going up. People are so dependent on electricity, um, they're going to want some form of a microgrid or resilience in another format. Thank you, Peter. It's been great. I, I really appreciate talking with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for listening to Grid Talk. We've been talking with Peter Asmus, who's the executive director of the Alaska Microgrid Group. Please send us your feedback or questions at gridtalk at nrl.gov. And we encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite platform. For more information about the series or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit smartgrid.gov. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information. (laughs) 